0: Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. And Zahava Stadler in northern New Jersey. Hi, Zahava. You're back. Hey, so
1: nice to be back with you guys. Zahava, do you want to tell us what's new with you? I have been on podcast maternity leave. Well, I have also been on everything maternity leave, (laughs) Um, and so I have a new baby girl at home. Super awesome. We are we are pro babies, um, especially when they let us sleep, but also the rest of the time. You
0: know, we just got a Skype uh, first interview with Sahaba's baby, and she was amazing. You'll you'll all have to wait. But. I can just say it was top notch interviewing.
1: Excellent. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really about the expressive face at this point. <laughs> it's so true. Not so much about the word choice. Yeah. Um,
0: uh. Well, we're so glad that you're back. We really missed you.
1: We did. Thanks, guys. So- and thanks so much for our guests for uh, covering for me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yes, we had. We are lucky to have excellent guests. Um, this month, we have no guests, but we have some excellent topics. We're going to be talking about uh, stereotypical Jewish appearances, Jewish noses, Jewish hair, generally looking Jewish. What does it mean to look Jewish, especially now that the Jewish community is getting more and more diverse? And for our second segment, we're going to be talking about Jewish burnout. What is it? Why does it happen? And how can we avoid it? I am very personally invested in that second one. Um So, uh, Zahava, do you want to take it away?
1: Yeah. So our first topic, as you said, is this notion of Jewish stereotypical appearance. Um, There was a very recent piece by Sharona Pearl in Tablet called The Myth of the Jewish Nose, um, which I thought was really interesting from a historical standpoint. But there are so many things that we associate with the Jewish appearance Um, And I think that we've been checking ourselves more recently, as you said, as the Jewish community is getting more and more diverse. We also had an interesting conversation among ourselves when we talked about shul security, synagogue security recently, about the assumptions that people make about who does and doesn't belong in a shul space that I think is really related to this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm excited to explore it a little bit more with you guys. Do you you feel like you grew up with um, really a concrete notion of what Jewish looked like?
0: I... Definitely grew up thinking that Jewish meant white. Like I just I knew as a teen I started to know some people who weren't white and were Jewish but not before that. Um, But like I did not just really didn't grow up thinking about Jewish hair like that. I have been shocked at how much is written about Jewish hair and how fraught so many Jewish women's feelings are about their hair. That was just like not on my radar at all as a child and I'm like as an adult kind of sorting through it a little bit. What about you Mimi? Well, um
2: you know, my mom converted to Judaism. So, I actually had a lot of messages about what looked Jewish and what didn't from her because she was very insecure about her light hair, light skin, light eyes, um, and not looking Jewish enough and really wanting to, to match her kids, um, who all, we all have dark hair, dark eyes. Um, and so I had, I hadn't, I hadn't unpacked, but I did have this idea of what looked Jewish. And actually as somebody with pretty straight hair, um, even just out of the shower, pretty straight, um, I also thought that I didn't look Jewish enough and was told by an ex-boyfriend's mom that I did not look Jewish. Um, so, I yeah, I spent a fair amount of time thinking and worrying about not looking Jewish in all of those stereotypical ways. Even as those stereotypes were talked about in non-attractive ways, it was something that I felt outside of my community.
1: That's really interesting. I think that as somebody who, who went to Jewish schools and then from fourth grade and up, my classes were all female. Um, so it was just me and a bunch of other Jewish girls all the time. And we didn't all look particularly similar. <laughs> um, and, you know, there were, there were girls in my class with straight dark blonde hair. Nobody had like blonde blonde. Um, but you know, there were girls in my class with curly hair. I went to elementary school with one girl of color. Um and on the one hand, like I was aware that she had like darker skin than other people, but like she was there in my Jewish school and I took her for granted. Um, on the other hand, I think that we did exoticize her a little bit, like she was cast as Queen Esther when we were five in the play. Like, everybody thought she was so beautiful. Um, and in retrospect, that feels a little funny to me. I mean, she like she's, you know, got a gorgeous face, and I don't mean to, you know, Hannah, if you're out there. Um, but in the meantime, it, in retrospect, it is interesting that, like, we did notice her in that way without really noticing her as less Jewish. Just noticed her because mm-hmm. there was a little bit of difference there. Um But I also did not have all of this baggage about Jewish hair. And it is so interesting how much seems to have been written about it. Um, But like, yeah, did I did I spend a lot of time gelling away frizz in my life? Yeah, but I just thought that's because I lived in New Jersey and it's humid. Like, (laughs) I didn't think it was a Jewish thing. Um, And so do you have curly hair? I I
0: always see you with your hair covered. So I actually don't know.
1: (laughs) I have like wavy hair. My mom has legit curly hair. Um, And I have wavy hair. But I mean, I spent like my teen years pulling it up into a ponytail when it was wet. And so the top was always Dry, like straight by the time mm-hmm. it dried and it looked kind of like Mary-Kate and Ashley were doing this thing at the time that was like straight at the top and then like waved out at the bottom. <laughs> and that was what my hair was doing. Um, not in homage to Mary-Kate and <laughs> Ashley. It just happened <laughs> to be the same period.
0: Trendsetters so. though they are. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's okay. You could
0: tell us how much you love Mary-Kate and Ashley. We won't judge you.
2: <laughs> it, so the, the Jewish hair is something I – have spent a fair amount of time thinking about um, because my husband and all of the women in his family have like thick, kinky, curly, dark hair. And there's a part of me that's like, what if, if I birth a baby that has this hair, like what am I going to do? (laughs) I'm used to brushing my hair, blow drying it, shampoo every day, conditioner. Like I, I think about this, like you know, how you take care of somebody's curly hair. Like I'm reading more and more that it's important. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I feel like the need to educate myself preemptively on like what to do with Jewish hair.
0: Yeah. I, um, I, I have like thin, straight, fine hair and like my hair holds a curl for like 45 seconds like it's really just like does not does not compute um and in fact like it's funny because if you would have asked me what is Jewish hair I would have said like thin like hair that's too thin to count as hair like my Bubby wore a wig almost her whole life and not like for reasons of covering her hair for religious reasons, but just because like the hair on her head was too thin and it just like, didn't even really look like hair. So right like that to me <laughs> was like the most Jewish hair was like having a wig on because like your own hair, like didn't really do the job. Um, but like what most people I guess think of when they think of Jewish hair is big, thick, curly hair Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating to me how specific that is and how few Jewish women I know that it applies to. Like, I know some women with, like, incredible manes of curly hair, but, like, I would not say that most of the Jewish women I know have hair that's even, like, in that realm. Like, it just it doesn't really speak to most of my Jewish experience, even my like most norm core Jewish experience. Um, So I'm kind of like puzzled by it. And the same is actually true for um, Big Noses. Like the article by Sharona is really interesting because she talks about how like, you know, it It doesn't work in a world where we just have Jews that look like all different kinds of things, but it actually never worked. Like somebody actually did a study of measuring Jews' noses and the study is like now over 100 years old. So it was like at a time when the Jewish community was less diverse than it is now and it's still like Jews just didn't have big noses. Like the results of the study were basically like this isn't really a thing, but it is a thing in people's minds and it's not just a stereotype like an anti-semitic stereotype like within the jewish community i also do hear people talking about like oh my gosh look at that look at his jewish nose um
1: and i i do wonder how much of it comes from the anti-semitic stereotype though like is it something that we've reclaimed because i can't think of a traditional jewish text that i have ever read that mentions noses as like a Jewish mm-hmm. feature of any kind, like it just
0: yeah. I mean, I, it's certainly not it's something that not comes from a Jewish, text. From
1: a Jewish <laughs> text. Well, I don't. I don't mean like <laughs> biblical commentaries. I just mean like you know whatever the like response from the eighteen hundreds. I don't, Nobody nobody says like oh, our, we're not sure this child is Jewish. Let's measure his nose. Like it doesn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. It doesn't come from anywhere internal that I can see. And also, like we our actual Jewish literature, right? The, the body of knowledge that we have is very clear that Jews are more diverse than Eastern Europe. Right. Right. Like we have like, you know, at the very least everybody knows that we have Sephardic Jews from Spain and North Africa and the Arab world. And we have Ashkenazi Jews from, from Northern and Eastern Europe. And like they at the very minimum, we've we've reckoned with that level of diversity in like all of our in all of our history for the last however many hundreds of years, like the notion that, that Jews look a certain way doesn't seem to come from the religion. Right, um, right. It, it really seems to come from a self-consciousness about how we're perceived. And I, I find it very interesting, like the what we append the word Jew to, like Jewish nose, Jew fro. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um like I mean and when I was When I was growing up I did actually Think of like dark blonde hair as Jewish blonde like the girls I knew With blonde Hmm. hair had Jewish blonde hair (laughs) Um, Like they didn't have Real blonde hair Um,
0: The only person I know Who is like a real Like Extremely blonde Like white blonde hair Is an Orthodox Jewish person (laughs) Um, (laughs) And like at our high school was kind of like a sight to behold.
2: (laughs) Well, did any of you have friends who, I I did, friends who the summer before college went off somewhere and came back with a different nose?
1: Oh, interesting. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I don't think I know any people. I, I don't know anybody who got a nose job, for at least for that reason. Yeah.
2: That was a that was a thing that I I definitely witnessed and was not discussed. You know, it was sort of like, this is what I feel I need to do in order to go to college and feel good about myself, feel ready to make this new set of friends and relationships. And yeah, we never talked about it.
0: Hmm. I know a couple of people who got nose jobs, but I just uh, neither of them were people whose nose like ever occurred to me as a thing. And I feel like. There are some cases where people get nose jobs where it's like, oh, I can see that this was like a distraction to people you were dealing with your whole life. And it like made an impact on your like relationships and job prospects or whatever. But I feel like most of the people I know who've gotten nose jobs, it's been like, this is more about your self-conception than anything else. Like, you know, and and that's why I feel kind of not, not super positive about nose jobs is because I feel like they're like almost like an external expression of an internal anxiety. Um, and like, I wish that there was a way to be like, you just don't have to worry about that anymore. It's it, it's like not a thing that other people are focusing on at all i mean i know that that's like not in any way shape or form how self-conception works but um but it seems it actually seems like
2: maybe that message is happening in some way because the number of nose jobs in america and in the jewish community have dropped yeah so from i think i read something like from 2000 to 2014 the number of nose jobs dropped by like 40 percent um in the, in the whole country, which is a lot of different reasons why people would get a nose job. Um, but yeah, I think we're, I, I feel a change certainly like in Jewish conversations, people, you know, proud of their noses or just like, you know, not, not buckling to like any of the shame, even like Twitter rant, Twitter trolls, um, you know, attacking journalists about their noses. It's like. Screw you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I also think we're just kind of in a different moment in, like, body positivity and stuff now, and so I think that is playing into it as well. But it does feel like the there was a moment in the, like, 70s and 80s when it felt like nose jobs for Jewish girls was, like, a thing that people talked about as, like, a known phenomenon, and I feel like it has gone away and I don't I'm not sure why
1: I think people though did think of Barbara Streisand as someone with a Jewish nose um, and that there's like a little bit of pride um, mm-hmm. in being a visibly Jewish um, visibly Jewish celebrity and part of it is you can, you can tell we, she's got that nose I think Jon Stewart used to make jokes about his own nose um, but you know you go back to like old Hollywood, the people that um, Americanized their Jewish names didn't also get a nose job. Um, it wasn't it wasn't necessary. Like, you didn't need it in order to be undercover. Um, right, right, right. I do think that if you come from a segment of the Jewish world where you think of Judaism more as an ethnicity, um, and this is, I think, especially true among Russian Jews, that they've got sort of um, a very strong sense that Judaism is an ethnicity rather than a religion and sort of a a post-Soviet way, um, like the religious identity was far less important than the ethnic identity and the fact that somebody looks or doesn't look Jewish, in contradistinction to like a blonde pale Russian person, there was a Russian Jewish look. I remember somebody um, who was in my, uh, you know, on my hallway my freshman year of college and he mentioned to me that he was also Jewish and I'm like, oh yeah, like you look really Russian. Jew- like he was Russian and he mentioned that he was also Jewish. I said, oh, yeah, you look really, really Russian to me. And he said, really? Like Russians don't think I look Russian. Like <laughs> they think I look Jewish. And that is not the same right. thing. Um, and... Well, you were probably used to seeing a lot of Russian Jews. Exactly, right? But we'll if see. you yeah. if you come from that segment of the Jewish world, then this might be a really different conversation for you.
0: Yeah. It's funny that you said, though, that like the that Barbra Streisand's nose made her visibly Jewish, because it's like, what, what is that now? Like, there was a time, I think, when people felt more like people would be able to look at you and know that you were Jewish. And now we're in this time where it's like, that isn't really a thing anymore. Although, like, there, there are still some people who have uh, this kind of, like, old-timey look to them. I'm thinking of Adam Driver in Black Klansman, where it's like, yeah, the characters are like, this guy looks Jewish, and I found myself being like, yeah, how does anyone not think that this person is Jewish? So, like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that that's kind of one thing. But now we live in a world where, like, this is not really the case. Where, where we typically see people and might think, oh, this person really looks Jewish. So like, what are the visible Jewish signifiers for you? I was thinking about it and I was like, for me, it's like, it's about clothing and headgear. Like, that's mm-hmm. really...
1: But those are signaling choices. Right, right. I think for me, it's actually less about what makes me assume someone is Jewish and more about what makes me assume sometimes erroneously that someone is not. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, you know, Mimi, this might resonate a little bit more with what you were saying about feeling like you didn't look sufficiently Jewish for some mm-hmm. people. Um, I, I remember a time in college when, um, so I was on the board of the Orthodox community, and we had like a little booth during the student activities fair to be like, we are a club, right? Like, you know, we're trying to get new students to know that we exist. And a couple of people on the board would be like, do you want to learn about Yavne to people walking by that were like Asian or black or, you know, and then one of the other people in the community said to me, I'm a little uncomfortable that they're doing that. Like, we're not a proselytizing religion. We're not trying to recruit. And they're talking to people who are obviously not Jewish. I'm like, I mean, you don't know that they're not Jewish. On the other hand, we all felt like the odds were they weren't Jewish. And that's the part that I'm not sure how to how to reconcile. Like, I can tell myself that there's looking at somebody who doesn't fit any of the stereotypes, and especially is like neither white nor Middle Eastern looking. Um, is okay that person could be Jewish, but in my head, I'm like that. They're probably they're probably not. And odds are lower. Yeah, and and so how much. How much am i responsible to like check that assumption i have a story about this which
0: i still cannot believe this happened so i am um part of an independent minion in center city philadelphia and we had services last month and a woman walked into services a black woman who was wearing a muslim headscarf and she sat down and um the person who was giving out aliyot asked her if she wanted an aliyah and she said yes and I was kind of like what (laughs) normally I feel like anyone who walks in the door of a shul I'm just going to assume that they're Jewish why else would they be there but this person was wearing a Muslim headscarf and so I was like this is weird and I felt really anxious about it because I was like we're setting this person up for a humiliating experience like Putting aside whether or not like someone who might not be Jewish, if you should give that person an aliyah, like just from putting someone in a situation where they're going to go up in front of other people and just like not have not know what they're doing, even if that person is Jewish, it's actually a really humiliating experience. And I was like, super. I was like, I, I don't know what to do here because I don't think there's any way to like not give her the aliyah now that isn't humiliating. But I was also like, this is not going to go well for anyone. I'm sitting a few seats away from her and she is like clearly trying to figure out what page we're at. So I show her what page we're on. And then I can see that she's like following along in the Hebrew. And then she goes up and has an aliyah and does better than a lot of Jews I know (laughs) because having an aliyah is actually like kind of choreographically complicated and she nailed it. And I was like, (laughs) I was just totally flabbergasted And, like, I have not seen her since. I didn't really get a chance to talk to her. It was super surprising and i feel like it just was like a lesson specifically to me like i was just like <laughs> in that moment to learn to just like check myself and not make assumptions and it's funny because i'd been part of a conversation earlier like a week before about how like i assume that anybody who comes into the shul is jewish unless they are like wearing something that's like an open signifier of another religion because there's also a man who comes to this to shul sometimes who like wears a like priest's collar and so like to me I'm like even though he also wears a tallit I'm like I'm assuming you're not Jewish and um and I I mean I I don't know what this woman's story is but like she knew perfectly good Hebrew to me it just really has made me think a lot since then about like looking Jewish and even choices that people make just like there there's just a lot of assumptions that go on um, around those things, and I think that like the assumptions are not unfair. like it is true that like ninety nine percent of the people I see every day who are wearing a like Muslim headscarf are probably Muslim, but like not a hundred percent and like not I was once at a grocery store in the Orthodox neighborhood where I grew up and Um, The woman in front of me was wearing a tichel and the woman behind me in line was Muslim and was like asking about the tichel because she kind of wanted to get one. And I was like, this is such a great moment of like cultures coming together. And it's like, yeah, why couldn't she wear a tichel? Um, (laughs) So so
1: I have personally bought head coverings from hijab websites. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I just don't tie them the same way. But if there's ever a scarf that's designed to stay on your head. Right. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Anyways, it just has made me think a lot about, like, assumptions and what it means to look Jewish and how we might be wrong about those things. And by we, I mean me.
1: Mimi, I'm interested in what you said before about the Jewish stereotypes not being associated with attractiveness. Um, Right. So before, before our recording, I shared a couple of links with you guys. One is an article from 2015 by Esther Brieger, who is a very curly-haired Jewish lady that I know who um, writes, who wrote a piece in The New Republic, um, was an editor for The New Republic, wrote a piece in The New Republic about um, the trend of very curly-haired actresses appearing on TV in very straight hair. Mm. So at the time, Juliana Margulies, who'd had very big curly hair on ER, was wearing very straight hair on The Good Wife. Um,
0: yeah, but I just want to say, That was a wig.
1: That was a wig. It's it's true. Um, She she had said that the hairdresser is just like, it was so much easier than spending the time straightening it for every taping. (laughs) Um, But Carrie Russell, who had very famous curly hair on Felicity, had very straight hair on The Americans. And at the time, also, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who as Elaine on Seinfeld had, at times, had big curly hair, um, was wearing short straight hair on Veep. And basically the argument that Esther was making in this piece is that like curly hair does not equal strength and, uh, I'm sorry, straight hair does not equal strength and poise and that we we need to recapture the curly haired strong heroine on TV. Um, and the other piece that I shared with you guys is a spoken word poem by Vanessa Hittery called Hebrew Mamita. Had you guys heard that poem before? I had, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, this is one of these things where she's hit on by a guy in a bar tells him that she can't have dinner with him the night he proposed because she's going to be fasting because it's Yom Kippur. And he's like, wow, you don't look Jewish. And she understands that he's complimenting her. Um, right. And so both of these things, you know, were interesting to me because yeah, I, I grew up, you know, well, I, I tried to straighten my hair for a while. Um, but, you know, now my boss has very straight hair, and whenever she wants to do something fancy, she curls it. I don't know if there's just like an automatic self-hatred of any woman's hair, um, but I don't think I grew up with a strong notion that, that the Jewish stereotypes were unattractive.
2: Yeah, I actually don't think that I did either. I mean, again, it was the Jewish stereotypes were something that my mom and I in different ways were both striving towards, um, but I feel like I got messages from men in my life that that the nose the hair maybe even the boobs were not attractive um and you know certainly like the you know some of these stereotypes like when I think of the stereotypical Jewish physical appearance attributes I think of like Nazi propaganda Mm -hmm. comics and those are those are very hideous um drawings and yeah i think that though i there are times when i think like well so i don't have the nose or the hair but like can't that be a good thing like isn't that pretty mm-hmm. like tell me that it's pretty um it it all gets really complicated for me even though i I want to look more Jewish.
1: Yeah: It's funny, I feel like the Jewish stereotype that I think is most broadly true in the Jewish communities that I'm from is that the men are short. Yeah, I mean yeah. the women are short too, but that's less conspicuous. but let's just <laughs> right. just like knock a couple of inches off the American average for the Jewish community. Um, you know and. Like, but I don't feel like father- that's like
0: a very strong Jewish stereotype. Like I guess I think of it, but I don't know that I would think that other people would think of it who aren't Jewish. I mean, like I haven't heard anybody who's not Jewish say anything about Jewish people being short.
2: I remember once walking into a bar in college with a lot of Jewish friends and somebody saying, this is the shortest group of people (laughs) I've ever seen (laughs) all (laughs) together. And we were like, oh, we don't think of ourselves as short, but okay, when we're all together, we look short. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. (laughs) I don't know what all of this means, like what we should do with these stereotypes, except where possible, embrace them in ourselves and also put them to rest as a community. Because... Our community is growing more diverse and it's so important to recognize that. But what do you guys think?
0: Yeah, I think that they are mostly just signs of internalized anti-Semitism. And to the degree that we can like divest ourselves from them, then I think we should. But it also just like reading all of the the things that Jewish women have written about their strong feelings about Jewish hair it does just feel like, oh, I don't know how we can undo this like this is like really deeply deeply ingrained into a lot of people's psyches um and yeah I I do hope that it will fade as our community continues to become more diverse and like different kinds of things people's experiences of what you Jews look like change but it doesn't it seems like it's not going to be easy to change.
1: To me, I think the most important thing to check in myself is just to make sure that when I encounter a Jewish person that doesn't fit like a white European stereotype, to not assume they're a convert. I think this is something that happens a lot to people. And they're like, no, like I've been... and, And... not that it would be negative if they were a convert, but I think that there are like sometimes different uh different supports that you offer to somebody or different explanations that you offer or whatever that you may or may not be appropriate in the moment but you the the assumption that somebody is a convert, I think is really pervasive if you um if you see somebody who doesn't fit that white European stereotype and I think just putting that experience on people. There's no reason to ever assume somebody's had an unusual experience without yeah. without them letting you know that it's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we move on to burnout?
1: Oh man, Woo. who's not psyched about burnout?
0: <laughs> uh yeah. Um so I am the person who suggested that we talk about burnout, and I wanted to talk about it because there was a great article in BuzzFeed recently by Anne Helen Peterson about burnout and what it is. Um, and basically, we'll link to it in the show notes, but she basically posits that, like, the millennials, especially older millennials, really have this big issue with burnout because they've been primed since childhood to be, like, as productive as possible and that that really leads to people feeling kind of like once that at when they're at their peak productivity they're like oh is this it like this doesn't feel good um there's more to it than that but that's kind of what i my my understanding of her her sense of, of burnout is um and I read that and I thought like, oh, I don't really feel like I have burnout because I feel like I actually – the thing that prevents me from getting burnout is being a part of a Jewish community and being – I feel like I just get a lot of revitalization and feeling of like meaning from my Jewish community so I don't feel as like my job is – the thing that holds all of that freight but then I was at shul and I was like oh my god I'm so burnt out (laughs) by Judaism like I just I just yesterday was having a really when I was at shul on Shabbat I was just having this like really intense feeling of like very specifically feeling burnt out about judaism and feeling like i don't know how i'm going to continue to like invest this deeply in judaism for my whole life because i'm so tired um so uh, (laughs) help (laughs) what do you guys think about this as this does any of this resonate with you like what what does jewish burnout even mean to you
1: i think that one thing about well, I think that there are two different ways you could be feeling burnt out. One is in your own private observance and whether the emotional and mental investment that's required in order to be having like a, a strong Jewish experience is something that you just don't necessarily feel like you have right now um, or have to give right now. The other is the Jewish communal participation investment. Um And I think those are actually very different things. And I think that over time in my life, they've ebbed ebbed and flowed, not necessarily together. Um, It's not as though when I'm feeling lots of personal connection, I'm also really communally involved in practical hands-on ways. Um, Sometimes they might be inversely correlated, like the effort that you're putting in in a tangible communal way might mean that you actually don't have the energy or or mental space for your own um, spiritual investment. And maybe you might need to dial down that external investment in order to fan your personal flame a little. Um, And sometimes on the opposite, if you're not feeling it internally, you can say to yourself, well, my Jewish participation right now, my Jewish investment right now, is something that I can sort of fake it till I make it by doing the external stuff and doing that community support participation stuff. Um, but I think that presupposes that it's okay to ebb and flow. And if you put yourself in a real position of communal responsibility, um, that's a long-term commitment, then it's really hard to ebb and flow because you have these commitments to other people. And that can mean that it's really hard to tend to your own personal investment on the inside because you, it's, it's not optional, the stuff that you've committed to.
0: Yeah, sorry, Mimi. Did you want to say something?
2: Um, I found myself thinking about um, the documentary we watched, "There Are Jews Here," about very small Jewish communities and the ways that um the volunteers in those communities got incredibly burnt mm-hmm. out. Now, when I think about burnout, I also think about the communal obligations, the getting stuff done, the um, committees, I'm not, I'm not a member of any of those sorts of things in my Jewish community currently. So for me, actually, the burnout is around the Chagim getting just like so tired of all of the praying and holidays. Um, But I actually did some Googling and I found that this seems like in the Jewish community, the burnout is discussed among rabbis, and in the Christian community, it's discussed among lay people. Um, mm. And I found some really interesting—we'll uh, share in the show notes—some um, really interesting like Christian blogs about um, finding finding antidotes to burnout. I want to share two that were Christians finding antidotes within Jewish tradition which I think is interesting. Um, so one woman was talking about, uh, she was actually clergy, and she was talking about the obligation to, I I guess, sorry, let me just say from the outset, both of these blogs that I'm going to mention tie their burnout to this Christian notion of suffering and sacrifice. Um, and though that's not something that we have necessarily in our text. I think it is still something that we have in our community, (laughs) in the Jewish community, right? Um, So uh, in the first one, the clergy member was talking about feeling burnt out by just continually accepting with compassion people's abusive behavior towards her. Um, And she was diagnosed with PTSD and like had to take a break from church. And she found an interesting, she, she was reading a memoir by Ellie Wiesel and actually really drew inspiration from this idea of choose life. Um, and the idea that she can't totally withdraw. She needs to choose the things that rejuvenate her and refill her. And in the other blog, an a Jew, a Christian, um, person who volunteers a lot for her church was talking about what how churches can keep volunteers from getting burnt out and one of the themes that she brought up several times was Shabbat like letting people investigate and play with and explore taking a break but she also talked about I thought this was interesting when you're on a committee people you get so focused on the tasks and the showing up and when are you going to be there and when's the next meeting um, that committees often don't make time for prayer and sharing. Now that again would look different in a Jewish context but I think that Sahava, as you mentioned like there are sort of these two different spheres of the personal um, spiritual connection and the communal responsibility and obligation but it's an interesting idea to make room for the personal spiritual while volunteering in the communal obligation sphere um and that maybe that allows people to continue to feel connected to one another and to their spirituality and sort of the big picture why they're doing it Mm. i don't know it was helpful I think that maybe one antidote to burnout is exploring what's going on in. I was going to say, I feel like like
0: it's actually really different if you're Christian to be like, I'm going to look in the Jewish tradition to see what they do, than if you're Jewish to be like, I'm going to look and see what Christians do. Like there is a real stigma against like, what do the Christians do in the Jewish community, and maybe the.
2: The Jewish way is to look to Eastern <laughs> religions, right? That's, right, sort, of that's sort of the movement.
0: I think it is, although that also has a stigma in some Jewish communities. Right. Um, what,
1: um, what's interesting, though, Mimi, is about what you just said. Is um, in, in my in my Jewish community experience, the like practical, like get it done people um, who volunteer for the committees and make it happen are not always the same people who like enjoy a moment of public spiritual reflection. Um, right. And it's possible that, um, it's possible that in a, in a community, in a Christian community, that's something that was more spirituality and faith-based and less practice-based, um, that those might be more of the same people. Um, but I have a hard time picturing like, you know, the, the kiddish setup committee at my shul, like stopping to share their joys and challenges from the week. <laughs> You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, even if it might be helpful, right? Right. Um the it's just, you know, okay, listen, we don't have time for the touchy feely stuff, who's buying the soda, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: I I feel like a big part of my like personal burnout and the burnout that I feel like I'm seeing around some of my peers is related to Jewish literacy. Basically, like, if you want to have a, like, active Jewish community that's going to do Jewish rituals and prayer, then you need to have, like, a certain number of people who are capable of leading those prayers and, you know, reading Torah or giving divrei Torah or whatever. And <clears throat> you basically need... A critical mass that's like a not small number like 15 to 20 people who have pretty good skills in order to like cover all of the pieces that you need to cover for a Shabbat morning Um, and those people have to do something basically every time that you meet Um, and that is just a lot (laughs) <laughs> of, of work and preparation, um, and, like, I, we're, it's something like 10 years ago that Rabbi Eli Koffer's, Confer's book about empowered Jewish communities came out that was really kind of about, um, independent minyanim and how to build them, and, like, I think it was really important, but I also feel like, he wrote that book like at the end of the time when he had no children Um and wasn't like it was he finished writing it like when he was just about to launch or after he had just launched um, Yeshivat Hadar and like, yeah, you just <laughs> you can't. The amount of energy that you need to do um, a lot of that work to like really maintain a community you first of all need like a lot of people who can do it and second of all you need still to put in a lot of time which is much harder when you have like small children or a demanding job or both of those things um, and I've I've just been thinking about how like there's just there aren't a lot of ways, like, if you want to have a Jewish community that has, like, to where traditional ritual is, like, a central part of it, you need a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge to be very invested. Um, otherwise, it's extremely hard on, like, a few people. And... Or you need a really strong
2: adult education program going. But that's
1: something that the people with more literacy need to be facilitating to and making to happen as right. well. Right. I, agree. Yeah. I think yeah. the, the other option actually is just the expensive option, which is like, instead of having all these people lead services, you hire a right. cousin. Right. And like the professional model, um, you know, I, I think that communities... Not independent minyanim, but communities where um, where less of less private Jewish education is assumed among the membership, are communities that have professional cousins more likely that you know to do prayer leadership. Um, but
0: it's not prayer leadership that I think is actually the biggest ask most weeks on Shabbat. It's actually reading Torah, um, and that's the thing where it's like if you once you learn how to lead shachrit, you can lead shachrit any time. You might need a little bit of preparation, but like. You don't need the amount of preparation of that it takes you to learn a Torah reading, which takes a lot longer, even if you learn Torah reading very quickly. Um, and it does – it feels like this weird chicken and egg thing where it's like, yeah, a great model is like professionalizing it and just being like, we don't have the capacity to do this all the time, so we're going to pay somebody to do it. But then you're stuck in this situation where like you don't actually – have the capacity to do it so like you're always going to be paying someone and then maybe like you're actually not the community is not developing and maintaining the Jewish literacy that it needs going forward um and I think that that just like I mean it's not a problem if you have a community of a certain size um but I just feel like more and more that isn't that easy to get like I live in Philadelphia it's not like I'm it's not like when I lived in Nashville (laughs) um, or Iowa City other another place I've lived like those are places where it's like yes everybody is going to have to really step up and the community is going to have to set their expectations based on like really what are the realistic things we can expect from this group of people based on like who we are and what we can do and it's like if in a major urban community, we're still having these problems of like, and I'm not even talking about an independent minion. I'm talking about a, like an established conservative synagogue and also at Orthodox synagogues that I know of where it's like, who is going to lead services and who is going to read Torah is actually like a really big stressful headache for people. And as someone who can both lead services and read Torah and, I I just feel like the weight of that responsibility is so great. Like, I just feel like I don't want to do a – I don't want to read, like, one or two columns of Torah every time we hold services, but there's not, like, a lot of other people who can. So what is the solution? It's like, go back in time and make more people comfortable with reading Torah. (laughs) But – I mean, I agree that adult education is a part of it, but it's like I definitely don't have time to, like, teach more people to read Torah in addition to reading all of the Torah every every week or every couple of weeks. So it just – I don't know. It feels like a really hard, stuck thing to be in, um, and and it's exhausting. Like, I am not a rabbi, but it, it's, like, just – being on when you're at shul on Shabbat is so emotionally taxing and just like takes so much out of me that like, I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine like doing that all the time, but it's also like, well, who will? (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah. one of the, one of the, sort of quasi definitions that Ann Helen Peterson offers for burnout in that article is, um, things that should be joyful become tedious to do lists. Yeah. Like this is just a thing I got to get done. Um, and I think in the religious context, that's especially pernicious because if you are unable to experience any of this as joyful or personally meaningful, then like you are on the losing end of your religious experience. Um, and, you know, I in, in response to that article, actually, so I, um, I, I watched the collaborative video blog, The Vlog Brothers on YouTube, um, and, which is a collaboration between Hank and John Green. Um, John Green is a young adult author. Well, the two of them are now both authors and do the internet as a significant amount of their job. So it's a little hard to explain who they are. But anyway, so <laughs> Hank wrote, uh, created a video on burnout pretty recently. Um, and he said that for a long time, he thought burnout was, I've done this for so long that I just can't do it anymore. Like I collapse. Um, but that he'd been talking to somebody about the neuroscience of it and that it actually seemed like a better definition was the treadmill keeps going, but the dopamine runs out. So you're still doing it, but you're not enjoying it anymore. You're not getting any, any benefit out of it anymore. Um, and that was meaningful to me, especially tomorrow, and the kinds of stuff you're talking about in, in Jewish communal obligations. Um, and the model that he put out was actually helpful and interesting to me, which is that in order to do something, you need fuel and opportunity. Um, fuel could be like your sense of responsibility to your community, or it could be the personal meaning that you're gleaning from it, or it could be any number of other things. And opportunity is, you know, you've got the time, you've got the financial wherewithal, you've got the institutional setup that's required, you've got whatever it is. Um, and I I think some of it is recognizing when one of those things is running out and figuring out which side you need to focus on, right? So, if you have the, the communal structure, but your fuel is running out and all you have is this plotting sense of obligation, then that's something to address with other people in your community and figure out how you can, um, how you can divide things up. And I think that maybe one, one thing that is helpful is explicit rotations yeah. so that you know when you're off. You know, growing up, um, my father was one of the gabbays of my community, one of the people who's, I think of my my father as, as one of spirituality's traffic cops, like that's, <laughs> um, which is actually kind of the perfect Jewish role for him. Um, but he was in a rotation for a long time with two other gabbays, and each of them would do a year. And then you knew you were off for two years, you were the gabbay for a year, and then unless you know, one of them went on vacation and they would say, hey, I'm going to be away for next week. Can you step in? But they knew they were off. Um, And, you know, that's something that you have to go to your opportunity structure, right? Your community institution and say like, my fuel is out and and we have to do this together or else I'm I'm going to have the more traditional kind of burnout where I just have to stop. Um, But if the issue is that like, you've got the fuel, you've got the fire, but like, you don't have a minion right? or whatever. Yeah. The opportunity structure isn't there. Like you need to know which half needs solving.
0: Yeah. I also been thinking a lot about the gendered like part of this, which is that I feel like in Jewish communities, the women are the ones that often end up doing a lot of the like grunt work. Um, and like being on the kiddish committee and like, you know, Trying figuring out what Tat is going to look like and then like hiring somebody or being on a rotation to do it. Like a lot of that stuff ends up falling primarily or exclusively to women. And I think that that is just really <laughs> just complicated because like the way to fix it is to involve more men in all of the you know, in the lead up and in all of the committees and all of that stuff. But somebody has to be like the first man on the kiddish committee or whatever. And that's like not always an easy sell. Um, It's hard to like change these structures once a routine has been established
1: yeah I think that's also related to what you were talking about the small community problem, right? Like you need a large pool of guys to find the one who's willing to be the first man yeah, on the kiddish yeah. committee right, um, right And also, I think that age diversity in the community is really big with this because, as you said, people with young kids have less capacity, but you know, people who are in a um people who are in a later stage of life might not have the you know, priority or ideas to create programming that are great for, for people with young kids or young professionals without kids or whatever and basically like big age diverse committed jewish communities simplify things and also are really really hard to make happen <laughs> yeah
0: right basically you have to choose from the ones that already exist wow well, tamar I don't want to go to Shill anymore. (laughs) I have too
1: much work to do when I get there. You know what, though? What would happen to your community if you, like, moved to California? Right? They would have to figure it out. But because you're there, you feel like you can't not be there. Yeah. But you would not consider that a reason to not move if you had a really good reason to move to California. I mean, I'm not saying you're planning on it. <laughs> um... Newsflash to Tamar's family. Um... Yeah. yeah, Jesse's going to listen to this and be
0: like, "What?" Um...
1: <laughs> but our sense of our own indispensability—it's—it's it's dependent on. Other... Yeah,
0: I do not think that I'm indispensable. I'm for sure not indispensable. I—I I just think that I. Um, like, it is totally a factor of, like, caring about things and wanting them to be a certain way, but then being like, oh, but, like, actually other people don't care as much. So if I don't, like, step in and make it this way, it probably won't be that way. Um, And also a factor of, like, you know, I being... <laughs> being a sucker and being the person who says yes to being on the committee when asked, even if you don't really have enough time because you want your demographic to be represented on the community or whatever. Like, there's just a lot of, to use a buzzword of the moment, intersecting things going on here of like, a lot of work that needs to get done, maybe not quite enough people or people, not, not enough people stepping up. And also like, Really, f- wanting a community that's going to like be the right community for you, and if and f- like, I guess one thing that I really took away from um, Ellie Comfort's book was like, if you want something to be different, like if you want to complain about something, then you have to like have a solution and want and be ready to do a thing about it. And I do really try and do that in the Jewish community and in and not in the jewish community but i also am just like well how do we like at a certain point there are things that you want to change that you like do not have any more gas in the tank to change um and i feel like that yeah i don't know <laughs> didn't mean to make this segment all about me um, <laughs>
1: No, I mean, but I totally get it. It happens to be that like having a new baby is, is the best possible excuse to not show up first time. <laughs> um, but I'm, but it's, it's for real, right? I like, everybody is really impressed when I go to show right now. Like you get so much affirmation. Um, and you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? Like I feel the lack because I've kind of absented myself because I can't quite manage most of, most of the time to get out and go. Um, and as some of it is deciding that, like, it is important enough for me that one week in three is a week that I don't read Torah, that I'm going to have to allow it to be subpar on the week that I don't do it in order to make sure that I have the fuel the rest of the time and like, that's a tough compromise. Um, and in the same way, right? Like, like prioritizing prayer is like not something that I'm doing right now. And it feels bad. It feels bad that I'm not prioritizing it, but then I like look up and it's 2 PM and I haven't eaten breakfast and it's like, Oh no, that wasn't happening. I wasn't also going to Dauphin this morning. Um, So ultimately, like, I hate to say that it's about the order of priority, but I think that the, I think the thing to remember is that the order of priority doesn't have to be consistent. Like you can choose the week off in the month and say, this is the week when I'm going to sacrifice that priority for this one. And Mm -hmm. like, that's allowed. And just reminding yourself that, like I said earlier, that, that like the ebb and flow is permissible. Um, and that you can structure it in a way that means that you know you'll have fuel next time.
0: I think my real challenge here is the fact that like Judaism as a religion does not actually think that like (laughs) the meets vote are our obligations all the time and I (laughs) was reminded of that quite a bit growing up and so now it's like telling myself like it's okay like if we don't have a good tour reader like whatever it's like very hard to chill myself out about that
2: <laughs> to be okay with that but i think the the other piece is also the more you say no the more people will be forced to turn to that other is folks true. um and I think that I I like the formulation of opportunity and fuel and I wonder if there are people in your community who have the fuel but have not been asked yet and have not pushed themselves and I'm not saying it's your obligation to ask them but that you say no forces the opportunity on other people I mean that I'm one of those people like just never been asked like not not super confident Torah reader, but I would prepare for weeks in advance if somebody asked me.
0: Yeah. It's just interesting for me on a bigger picture level. Like, there are a number of people I know, all women, who have been, like, super deeply invested in communities and, like, really grew communities, but then felt like they were left kind of, like, holding the bag and there was no one for them to, like hand things off to um or there was no there were people who were like willing but not really to like take the whole thing and it just meant that things did disappear um and like I I am not in that situation like but it does I do think about it a lot and think about how like keeping something creating community is like such a important thing and does feel like really sacred to me and important but also like is just like a huge job it's so much work and like it's reasonable for people to not want to do it including people who like started out doing it um but then then you do have to make a tough decision about like am I just going to be able to like walk away from this or I'm going to keep like schlepping it on my back, even though it makes me feel crappy. And I like, I guess (laughs) I didn't think that that's, that was going to be like one of the big questions of my Jewish life when I was younger. Like, this is not one that I foresaw.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I think that like, it also depends how much your notion of, of active Judaism, and Jewish participation is public and communal. And if all of the important, like, the most important mitzvot in your life and in your head are those, then the stakes are so much higher for absenting yourself from that periodically. But I know a lot of people for whom that public participation, I mean, this is true of many, many Orthodox women, is, like, not possible or not important to them. Mm -hmm. But they consider themselves very active and committed in their Judaism And if your notion of Jewish participation is expansive to include like the things that you do at home or privately or like, you know, whether it's learning or praying that you do by yourself or whether it's like, you know, private kinds of community service, like, you know, what people think of as acts of chesed, you know, like making a meal for that person who's sitting Shiva or for that family that had a new baby or whatever, you you are not shirking if you focus on the private because Judaism really cares about those things, right? And that's I true. I think that's something to give yourself permission to do. It's not like some kind of self care extravagance. Like it's actually <laughs> a Jewish priority. Also,
2: and you're really good at those things too. To my Why? things? The like the small the first of all the acts of chesed for sure, but also the things that happen in your home and in your family.
0: It's funny because I also think a lot of things like hosting meals and um, stuff like that. That's a lot of work, but that doesn't ever feel like work to me. Like I just like that stuff. But yeah, I guess I could be like, that is the Jewish thing that I'm doing now. I mean, it is. It's just like doesn't feel the same as going to Shul. Listen, if you guys are trying to tell me that I don't always have to go to shul and beyond, (laughs) I am here for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to stop trying to talk you out of it and start trying to talk myself into it. Um, Okay.
2: And I'm just saying, maybe look up what the Buddhism because it could be very enriching. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) Talking in shul about Buddhism. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, I think we should go along to our endorsements. Zahava, you have been gone for so long. Would you like to go first? First,
1: Sure. Um, so my endorsement is kind of a response to um, one of your segments last month. Um, so you guys were talking about the genderedness of Jewish ceremonies. It happens to be that along the way, I just had a Zebed Habat for my daughter. So I just did like a newborn girl ceremony thing um and as i was listening to you guys i was like so wanting to chime in
0: um like i've been thinking so much
1: about this and um and um i think there's like another conversation to be had about whether um gender distinct is always gender essentialist um which mm. i think you know th- there's something to talk about there but anyway sure. the um there was a book that I was reading in preparation for, um, creating, uh, or, or not totally, not creating from scratch, but, but, um, but organizing a it about for my daughter. And, um, the book is called A Jewish Ceremony for Newborn Girls. It's by Sharon Siegel. Um, and it, 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 I don't like endorse every element of every chapter, um, but it does a really great job of talking about um, the history of Jewish baby girl ceremonies, which I think a lot of people think sort of like started in 1970. Um, and she has an interesting chapter that explores some of that modern history, but she also goes back to talk about historical traditions in different Jewish communities and what they've looked like, which I really appreciated because I like my Jewish observance to feel really rooted um the older the better um and um so and in addition to those things she also is creating um, a philosophical argument for what kinds of things we should be doing and why and I I really appreciated the book so um a ceremony for newborn girls the subtitle is um the Torah's covenant affirmed and it's by Sharon R. Siegel
0: awesome Mimi what about you what do you got to endorse?
2: Well, I have not done this program, but I want to endorse a program that I recently learned about that I think sounds really cool. Um, And maybe some of our listeners would be interested in it. Um, So out in Colorado, hosted by Ramah and the Rockies, is a program called Bemidbar Wilderness Therapy. Um, It's mostly for, um, well, it is explicitly for young adults um i think 18 to 31 is the population that they're looking for um they focus a lot on uh, but it's a it's a therapeutic program that exists in a lot of christian communities and they are giving a jewish option for people um so they use they have mental health therapists on site they're also using the idea of being out in the wilderness, outdoor adventure, learning about yourself by being in nature and sort of overcoming the odds um, as a therapeutic approach. Um, they talk a lot, they they work a lot with people who are um, dealing with mental health issues, substance abuse, but also this like notion of failure to launch of people who haven't, young adults who haven't quite figured it out for themselves. Um, it's the only jewish wilderness therapy program out there in the united states i should say um so shabbat observance and kashrut is embedded in the program whereas in a lot of other places it would be sort of a um this thing that has to be accommodated and yeah it just sounds really um really interesting really exciting and impactful for certain people and also like something that as a Jewish community um, I think organizations like Chabad have done a lot when it comes to drug and alcohol abuse treatment programs Um, and this is a bit more expansive it's not just about drug and alcohol it's also about just general mental health and wellness um and I, yeah, I think it's something that I'm excited to see happening. This is their first. They did a trial five month period, like a sort of figuring it out, and this is their first full year doing wilderness therapy. It's called the Midbar Wilderness Therapy. Looks really awesome. I have a friend who works there, and yeah, it sounds
0: great. It's cool. Yeah, um, I'm going to endorse a a novel that I just read called Go Went Gone by Jenny Erpenbeck. Um, it's translated from the German, and it's about um, a man living in er, in the suburbs of Berlin, I think, and he grew up in East Berlin, and he and his wife were like a young married couple when the um, Berlin Wall came down, and his wife has died, and um, he becomes he's retired and a retired professor and he becomes really interested in African refugees living in Berlin. And he kind of starts going to where they're encamped and listening to their stories. And he is kind of slowly becoming um, involved in their lives. And at the same time, he's really thinking about his own personal history and what it was like to live in Berlin when the wall was coming down and also kind of what happened with his wife it's really and no one in it is Jewish (laughs) um but it felt really Jewish to me because he is doing a lot of thinking about like what it means to have refugees there in Germany after Germany did what it did um during the Holocaust and Um, he's also thinking a lot about like what it was like to live in East Germany versus what it's like to live in Germany now. Um, and really kind of like how he has felt like a refugee in the past and how the refugees are being treated, um, in the present. And I don't know, it really affected me in a very deep way. I think the book is really kind of a meditation on like what it means to put yourself Out there um and do real chesed, real like acts of compassion for other people, um, in a time when in in a situation where that's like not really looked upon as a great thing to do, (laughs) where like nobody is really giving you a pat on the back, um, and where the structures are not there to really help those people. So you're kind of helping them in a vacuum and what does that mean and how does that feel and what are, are the contexts that you bring with you when you do that kind of work? I don't know. I'm not doing a good job explaining it, but it was a really moving novel and um, really has made me think a lot about um, just what it means to help other people um, and how our own, the stories that we tell about ourselves are so much a part of what goes into how we help other people um, and I don't know, to me that, that idea feels very Jewish. So that's why I'm recommending it. It's called Go Went Gone. That sounds really cool. Sounds yeah, good. It's yeah. good. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple podcasts. Um, you should also let us know we'd like us to discuss on future episodes. You can also leave a comment on a post on our facebook page you can search for jewish public media um or go to our website jpmedia.co and choose talking and shul from the list of podcasts it would be awesome if you could donate to jewish public media at jpmedia.co that's a great way to support our show and make sure that we can always bring you new episodes thank you zahava it's so great to have you back
1: awesome to be with you guys
0: thank you mimi
2: this was lovely as always,
0: see you all next month.